Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath here at the law firm of Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us for yet another episode of the OSHA 3030. This ends a full seven years of running the OSHA 3030, and so when we meet again in August, we will be beginning our eighth year. Uh, of keeping the program going. I'm joined today, and I'm very grateful to be joined today by my dear friend and colleague, Larry Halpern, uh, partner here at Keller & Heckman, one of the leading lights of OSHA law in the federal OSHA uh, community as well as in state-planned states anywhere in the country. Uh, and for that, I'm particularly grateful to be joined by you, Larry. Larry, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thank you, Monish. I'm happy to be here, and hopefully I've taken my uh, phone off of mute. Yep, I can hear you loud and clear. Uh, thank you for that. Great. So, so with that said, Larry, as you know, we've been doing this for a full seven years. All of our prior episodes are captured on our website and library there at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. A lot of good topics. If you are interested here, uh, listening today, as part of our OSHA 3030 community and catching any episodes that you may have missed over the past seven years, uh, easily 84 episodes now, uh, we encourage you to peruse the library. They're categorized by year and listen to them. Check out topics that may be of interest to you uh, and, and fill in the parts of the field of OSHA law that you feel like you'd like to learn more about. Uh, the, the program is also reprised as a podcast, so you, you can feel free to subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast app. Uh, and the only other thing I'd say is when you get the invitation for the next OSHA 3030, please remember to continue forwarding that invitation on to three new people every time, even if you've already forwarded on to three people. Please forward it on to three more and keep the word spreading so that the program has the opportunity to keep going as the years go on. We'd love another seven years of this program, and to do that, we're counting on you to spread the good words to new listeners and welcome new listeners to the OSHA 3030 community. So, Larry, as you know, we've got a great topic picked out for today, one that you brought to my attention, a Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals decision relating to OSHA's process safety management standard. Uh, so I guess what we ought to do to start off is talk about the facts in this case, uh, make sure everyone's caught up uh, to understand the arguments made in the case and the court's decision by talking about uh, some of the relevant elements of the PSM standard, uh, go through some of the prima facie elements that the OSHA uh, Office of the Solicitor of Labor has to uh, establish uh, every time they, they make a case. Uh, the Department of Labor's Office of the Solicitor is the attorney essentially for OSHA. And, and then understanding the arguments made in both sides and the, the decision, that the opinion uh, issued by the Fifth Circuit. Finally, as we always do, we should wrap up with a practical takeaway list of, uh, of action items that, that uh, you and the OSHA 3030 community can walk away with uh, in, in our final section uh, on what employers should do. So with that said, let's, let's get going. So this case involves a poultry processing company, Sanderson Farms, and it relates to their poultry processing plant in Waco, Texas. 
As part of their operations, Sanderson Farms uh, processes chicken and immediately sends them for freezing the product. Uh, and as a, a part of their operations, it's necessary in order to support the freezing operations to, to maintain massive refrigeration units. And as a part of their massive refrigeration process, the, the refrigeration process uh, contains anhydrous ammonia, the refrigerant, in excess of 10,000 pounds. In fact, in, in their Waco, Texas plant, they have over 70,000 pounds of, of ammonia uh, in that system. So, so OSHA first started off at the Waco, Texas plant issuing a request for information, a document request, and then they conducted an inspection. And as a consequence of their inspection, OSHA, they, they issued a citation with six items in it uh, arising out of the process safety management standard. Uh, subsequently, they withdrew two items. Um, Sanderson Farms issued a notice of contest in a timely manner and contested the remaining citation items. Um, as a consequence of, of the citation contest, the parties went to a full hearing and um, the ALJ issued his, his decision vacating three of the items and upholding OSHA's citation on two of the items. One of them was uh, an allegation that Sanderson Farms had failed to establish sufficient written procedures. And although they had written procedures, they, they failed to establish sufficient written procedures to constitute compliance with the standard and failure to perform inspections and tests on PSM-covered equipment. And again, they had a process for inspect testing and inspection. The allegation was that they had failed to actually perform the inspections and tests on, on uh, the PSM-covered equipment. Sanderson Farms appealed the ALJ decision, and the Review Commission, essentially what happened was that the Review Commission uh, declined to hear at the Review Commission level the ALJ decision, and thus Sanderson appealed it to the Fifth Circuit, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Uh, I, I believe, Larry, you'd, you'd, I'm sure you'd agree with me, anytime an OSHA decision rises to the level of a U.S. Court of Appeals review, it is almost, almost always likely to be worthy of coverage in the OSHA 3030 because there are collectively uh, quite a few OSHA decisions that have reached the US court, various U.S. courts of appeals. But in total, it still is a limited body of law from any U.S. court of appeals, and, that, and that's what makes it inherently interesting for a community. So the U.S. court of appeals uh, reviewed the, uh, the ALJ decision or, or the, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission's uh, decision not to review it. And uh, the, the basic issues on which this turned was the adequacy of the written procedures and the adequacy of the employer's uh, program for conducting inspections and testing on PSM-covered equipment. Essentially, the allegation by OSHA was that when you looked at the system developed by Sanderson Farms for compressor cutoff and emergency stops to prevent 
uh, either to prevent a release or to prevent continued release once the release has begun, uh, that, that those specific pieces of equipment in the system needed to be tested and inspected, and there was no documentation to suggest that there was compliance uh, with that requirement. Larry, maybe it would help our uh, community, OSHA 3030 community at this stage if we could describe uh, a little bit of the relevant elements of the PSM standard uh, that, that played a role in this case. Sure, Manish. I mean, we, we know the purpose of the standard, and it's important to note it's, it's ideally to prevent catastrophic releases or actually any significant releases. Uh, but it is also designed so that if one were to occur, it's designed to minimize the consequences. And so that played a role in this case. In, in particular, with respect to this case, there were requirements that you document that equipment complies with recognized and generally accepted good engineering practices that came up. Um, there's supposed to be a complete compilation of written process safety information, and there was a dispute about whether that had actually been done. Um, there are need written procedures that we've talked about to maintain equipment, and we'll talk about the details of what that means. And with respect to testing and inspection, that's that's fairly straightforward, and either it's done or it's not done. This case brought up an interesting issue for people to think about with respect to whether there might be a greater hazard presented by doing the testing, uh, but if a standard requires it, then uh, you'd certainly either do the testing or you develop the defense of a greater hazard and figure out another approach that's adequate. At least that's what the court suggested in some dicta in this case. And I think it's important uh, to note, this is really helpful, by the way, Larry, and I think it's important to note that the allegations uh, against Samson Farms related specifically to their failure to develop sufficient documentation and to, to that last bullet point, the periodic inspection and testing, uh, in accordance with generally accepted engineering practices uh, or, or the manufacturer's instructions. In this case, it, it appears that they had some significant amount of testing done, but there were certain things that they had understood as industry practice in the sense not to test, and it sounded like they also thought they had expert advice suggesting that those particular things didn't need to be tested, and, of course, OSHA and the court disagreed. Right, and you're referring to the compressor cutoffs and the, or cutouts and the, and the emergency stops. Right. So... So Sanderson Farms lays out a what I would consider to be a complete defense. They say to the court, if you look at the elements that OSHA has to establish in order to make a case for a violation, they, they failed on all four of the elements. In other words, Sanderson Farms made a defense denying the existence of all four of the elements rather than picking the one or two that Sanderson Farms felt maybe they had the strongest argument on, Sanderson Farms elected a strategy of saying, well, why don't we just throw up a defense on e at each and every instance where there's an element that OSHA has to establish and see which, let the court figure out which of them are strong or not strong. And that's an approach. Uh, so, so, the, so let's first talk about what those elements are. In, in an example, a typical case where OSHA issues a citation, they must establish 
that the cited standard applies to the cited or alleged violative condition or circumstance or appointment or practice. So it's important for you in the listening OSHA 3030 community to consider the scope section of any standard and figure out whether or not your operations, your equipment, your practice fits within the scope of that standard. Larry, I know you and I discussed this at length when we formulate our strategies for citation contests. And it's, I think one of the reasons why you, you've been so successful in your citation contests is that many times the best argument is that the standard doesn't apply at all. The compliance officer, the inspector, may think it does. And sometimes the employer or the employer's safety and health professionals might think that the standard applies. But there are compelling arguments that you've been able to, to craft as to why the standard does not, in fact, apply. That's a critical element. The next one, OSHA has to allege that there was non-compliance with the cited standard, so that the standard applies and that the employer didn't comply with that standard. There was a gap or a deficiency in conforming with the requirements in the standard. And then that even if there was a gap or a deficiency in conforming or complying with the standard, that there was also exposure by a worker to the allegedly violative condition or access to a violative condition. For example, if you switch standards to the machine guarding standard, it's one thing to allege that um, the standard applies and another to allege that there was a missing guarding. But if there was no employee access or exposure to that machine, that may not constitute a violation of the standard. There has to be exposure or access. Uh, a classic example or illustration. Then finally, OSHA has to allege actual or constructive knowledge through the exercise of reasonable diligence. Could the employer have obtained constructive knowledge of either the condition and uh, the, the fact that that condition was in that state or the practice was being uh, engaged in by workers or uh, collectively the violated, allegedly violated condition and that a standard applied? Uh, so those are the elements that OSHA has to establish in each case. Sanderson said OSHA failed to meet any or all of those uh, elements. So, so Larry, when we look at the uh, the allegation by OSHA and the citations that it issued with respect to a written process documentation and and with respect to uh, the the requirements to engage in testing and inspection. Um, why don't we discuss a little bit about the specifics of the citation and the allegations that are made? Okay. So in this particular case, the machine room, which is where the guts of the ammonia compressing system and the storage is located, uh, subject to some special regulation uh, under the International Machine Code as well as OSHA. It's also uh, there's an ASHRAE standard that's also used as a RAGA gap. So in this particular case, the, the ASHRAE standard was interpreted differently depending on who read it. OSHA interpreted it to mean that you had to have an ammonia detector in the refrigeration room, and since there wasn't one there, then you couldn't document compliance with RAGA gap. And uh, in this particular case, Sanderson had designated this particular ASHRAE standard as its RAGA gap. And the solicitor's position seems to be once you designate it, you're stuck with it and you have to comply with it. Um, and basically the ALJ in the court said, 
No, that's your interpretation, but there are other ragged gaps that might apply. There could be multiple documents. And in this case, if you read the International Machinery Code, there's basically an exception that says either you put a detector for ammonia in the room or you continuously ventilate the room. And there's probably some specification about the renovation, uh, the uh, ventilation rate, but as I recall. In any event, uh, Sanderson had been continuously ventilating the room and took the position that it wasn't required, therefore, to put an ammonia detector in the room. And the ALJ agreed with that and said his uh, oh, interpretation would basically have read a provision right out of the code and made it meaningless. And Agreed with that, and the International Machine Code basically said the same thing. With respect to two other things, OSHA tried to include within this failure to document that a door to the engine room was tight fitting and that a door opened outward instead of inward. And the ALJ said, and OSHA uh, Anderson's expert actually seemed to agree that a door to a room is not part of the process and therefore it's not subject to aggregate. So those were a couple things that got. That's why that particular citation got knocked out. As far as the failure to compile the written process safety information, uh, OSHA alleged basically that the PNIDs, the piping instrumentation drawings, didn't show all the lines coming in and out from and where they were going to from various vessels, and therefore that was an inadequate documentation. And Sanderson was able to show, well, the block diagram showed that information and there was no ragged gap that said it had to be in one particular document or the other and the ALJ agreed and so that citation got thrown out. There was another citation for failure to properly document the ventilation system design and that was based on the fact that the stated maximum ammonia in the inventory was 70,000 pounds approximately on one page of document and 80,000 on another and therefore OSHA alleged there was a hazard there because people wouldn't know which amount to rely on in, in operating the system. Uh, the Sanderson people were brought in who operated this system and said when they replenish the ammonia system, they don't look at those numbers in these documents. They look at the site ratings that are on the machines themselves and decide that consistent with the design, this is what the level supposed to be, and here's where it is. And so the ALJ actually found there was no exposure to a hazard, even though there was a technical violation because the amount of the inventory wasn't correctly stated. So that citation got thrown out. And then we have the remaining ones, we, which were the subject of uh, the appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals, basically, as far as having written procedures to maintain the process equipment, um, Two things happened. First of all, Sanderson said, well, these safety cutouts and these e-stops aren't part of, proper, of equipment that's listed within Section J. Therefore, the standard doesn't apply to them. And ALJ in the court said, no, that's certainly not consistent with uh, the way the standard's written. And then they also made the argument that even if there wasn't compliance with this particular standard, it wouldn't make any difference because there were other safety features in place that would prevent a release. And the LJ and the court both rejected that argument, said if you're not complying, you're going to be a presumption that there's a hazard to which people are exposed and you're not going to be able to argue that there's other safety devices that would prevent somebody from being exposed to a hazard. Um, and Sanderson also made the argument that it actually did have some written procedures in place, but 
most of them were more in the nature of a generic checklist. Um, so I guess one thing for people to think about is if you're not going to specifically write down because you think it's too much trouble uh, how you're going to maintain a piece of equipment, then you better have the manufacturer's instructions on how to maintain the equipment someplace nearby so that you can refer to them so that if OSHA comes along, you can say, here's what we rely on, and you won't have written your own specific procedure, but you'll have referred to the manufacturer's procedures, which would have to be adequate, so someone would have to check. I would expect they would be, but one way or another, they have to be written. The idea is you can't simply say, okay, you're an experienced mechanic, go over there and service that piece of equipment and you know what to do. Uh, the court basically rejected that and said the fact that somebody might be an experienced mechanic and trained isn't adequate. The standard specifically says things have to be in writing. So that's basically the way that particular activity went. And then with respect to the items that weren't inspected, the argument that the items weren't really covered by the standard because the cutoffs and the emergency devices weren't attached to a piece of equipment specifically identified in the list in Section J was rejected as an inappropriate interpretation of the standard. If it was a cutout or it was an e-stop, those are obviously controlled devices and emergency devices uh, for specifically mentioned in Section J, and the fact that the equipment that they're associated with isn't also listed has nothing to do with the fact that they're still covered. Um, so that was rejected, and then it was pretty obvious either they were tested or they weren't because there, there was documentation or there wasn't, and there was nobody who testified that anybody had done the testing. The only thing that came up toward the end of the discussion was Sanderson's people made an argument that testing some of these things could create a greater hazard. Um, the court said that was waived because it wasn't raised in the answer to the complaint in the first place and then suggested that the standard required the testing and therefore it was up to people to innovate and figure out ways to conduct the testing. Um, so making the greater hazard argument is something that would have to be made up front. And then, of course, if you make the greater hazard argument, you're supposed to do something that might not quite be the same that would be equivalent with the idea that you would test something to, to make sure it works. And that would probably require some automated testing procedures, but in any event, that's what the discussion was about, and uh, the court upheld the uh, DLJ's decision. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good uh, description of, of both of the arguments uh, between the parties as well as how the ALJ announcement the Fifth Circuit ruled uh, they just went straight down the line on Sanderson's arguments, and uh, essentially the Fifth Circuit opined that when you look at the scope of applicability of the PSM standard, uh, they rejected Sanderson's arguments that that the stops or cutouts in question didn't apply because they they don't prevent a release. They're not designed to prevent a release. Uh, the Fifth Circuit said that's not what it says in the PSM standard. As Larry, you pointed out, the PSM standard would apply to any device that prevents or minimizes a release. And and pretty clearly the cutouts, the stops, were designed to minimize release. Um, Sanderson argued that 
that when you look at the uh, exposure uh, that that could uh, ensue, they rejected Sanderson's argument that, well, the, the documentation doesn't have anything to do with exposure, and OSHA hasn't shown that there's any exposure that, that ensued by failure to document or failure to conduct testing and inspection. Uh, the Fifth Circuit said that's not really what the element, how the element is applied. When you look at the elements that there has to be employee exposure, that goes to certain types of standards. The majority of standards out there, uh, the exposure requirement is dealt with in the rulemaking process. And it's only a minority of standards, like, for example, machine guarding, the example I'd given earlier, where exposure becomes a, a prima facie element that OSHA has to establish. When you look at something like documentation, they've dealt with the analysis relating to the hazards that could ensue when they went through the rulemaking process. And so the, the implementation of the standard uh, subsumes within it the exposure analysis. Uh, Sanderson had argued that uh, the the standard doesn't require any specific method for testing and inspection, and it doesn't specify any frequency for inspection or testing. Fifth Circuit rejected that argument and said, well, you didn't do any. You haven't presented evidence that you've done any inspection or testing, and uh, it's pretty clear that generally accepted good engineering practices would require that you do some inspection or testing. And Larry, as you noted, the the greater hazard, they didn't really quite allege specifically in the terms of the greater hazard defense, but they did get to the substance of that defense by saying that if there's a, a safety stop or cutout, that testing it would potentially expose workers to a greater hazard than just leaving them alone. And I think there's a good argument to be made there. OSHA rejected it, however, saying that is not something that has been carved out as an excuse in the standard expressly. And so if you think that there's a greater hazard by conventional testing methods, you have to find a way to test or inspect these devices in a manner that is safe. And in order to do so, there may have to be some innovative techniques or instruments that are developed in order to conduct testing and inspection safely. Uh, that That's a sort of background expectation of employers in many standards, and they, they listed a few examples. Finally, Sanderson argued, look, we when we look at uh, whether or not we had knowledge of the violated condition and whether it violated the standard, we don't know one way or the other. We have to rely on PSM experts, experts in these complex refrigerant systems, and we have to take our word for it. Uh, the Fifth Circuit said, so, that, so there's no showing that we had knowledge. The Fifth Circuit rejected that argument and said, no, no, that's not how the knowledge requirement works. And I think this is a really interesting one uh, for those of you listening today. The, the Fifth Circuit said, OSHA only has to establish that you knew of a condition, not that it violated a specific standard or that it complies or doesn't comply with the complex, generally accepted good engineering practices. And you did clearly know that there was no monitoring or inspection or testing, and that there were no uh, it, that there was insufficient documentation for your for your uh, program, and that part you knew or should have known through the exercise of reasonable diligence. And so, relying on your experts would not be a sufficient defense here. I think that's precisely what makes this standard, uh, sorry, this decision, maybe so compelling that it had to be the topic for the July 
2020 OSHA 3030. I could well, mention one more thing. Yeah, there, there was there was one. It's sort of a cute argument they tried to make. The you know the one section in 19 119J talks about inspections and tests shall be performed on process equipment, and then the next section says procedures for testing will follow recognize well RAGAGAP. So the argument was made, well, there's no RAGAGAP for these for inspections and tests, therefore we don't have to do them, and the court summarily rejected that and said the clear intent of this is to prevent accidental releases that are significant, and that means testing all the equipment. And if there isn't a gap, it doesn't make a difference. you still got to test the equipment by some appropriate method. But, you know, when you're trying to make a legal argument, sometimes you, you try some creative things, and that, that one didn't work. Yeah, that's a very good point, Larry. In plain, I think that where the standard itself has a specific requirement, reliance on generally accepted good engineering practices is a secondary uh, consideration for how to achieve compliance. But it doesn't, in the absence of guidance on how to achieve compliance, it doesn't absolve an employer of the requirement to comply. And, and I think that's the essence of what Sanderson was arguing. And, and you're right, the Fifth Circuit didn't, uh, didn't buy it. Well, Larry, Let's wrap up with, as we always do, some practical takeaway items for, for our listening community. I, I think that to begin with, it's very clear that Sanderson Farms failed in developing a comprehensive written procedure for, that, that included the safety mechanisms like cutouts, interlocks, e-stops. Um, it's, it's true what you say, Larry, that, that manufacturers' instructions are, are a helpful first stop, but Many a kids times, and I suspect this was probably the case for Samson Farms, this is a uh, custom-crafted system that was built on site and and that uh, it, it probably has easily 40 to 100 different manufacturers' products in, uh, in the system. And there is going to be some responsibility by the employer to document the collective of all of those pieces that comprehensively comprise a collective system. And, and I think that that's just going to have to be the first step. Uh, the same goes for a checklist for training uh, for the responsible staff as well as inspection uh, and testing of, of various parts of the system. Larry, I suspected when I read this, and didn't say it, but I suspected what the, the development of a checklist that was never – that they couldn't show examples, documented examples of, of anyone who had put it to use, of a checklist of all the parts that had that's, that you could check off in, like a spreadsheet when it was uh, last inspected or, or tested. I suspect that the development of that checklist indicates that at some point somebody at Sanderson Farms had begun a uh, compliance PSM system. And so I, reading between the lines, wondered whether or not that person might have moved on and a new person had, was not either unaware of the development of this checklist and so didn't put it to use or didn't understand the system as well as his predecessors or her predecessors uh, at that site. Uh, whether that's true or not, a supposition on my part, uh, it nevertheless suggests a really critical uh, element in compliance, and that is making sure that successor uh, staff that are responsible for compliance are properly trained uh, either by the old person, and that's an ideal circumstance, where the the outgoing 
person sticks around long enough to fully train the new person, uh, but it's seldom achieved. And so either by the, the, the outgoing person or by somebody else within the organization or outside the organization, every new professional coming into that site needs to, who's responsible for compliance needs to be properly trained up and up and running before you just let them fly on their own. Uh, and cross-training of staff so that when somebody leaves, they don't take all of the knowledge with them is also another critical step that I would advocate for employers who have complex PSM-covered systems on their work sites. Larry, your thoughts? Well, you know, you make an excellent point. If if you read, let's see, I believe it's the it is the Court of Appeals decision. They refer to what you might call the PSM manual or the overview document, and there's a heading for maintenance procedures and inspections. So somebody did a, a good job of writing what I would like to refer to politely as the boilerplate for the maintenance program and the procedures that were supposed to be followed. And it says they're developed in the volume three, for example, in this particular thing, and they've developed for all expected routine maintenance tests, blah, 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 blah. So basically what happened is somebody wrote the general document of what's supposed to happen, uh, but somehow the follow-through in actually developing the maintenance procedures that are referred to in the umbrella document didn't happen. And the same thing, I'm sure some inspections and tests were done, but these particular pieces of equipment, um, these particular types of devices were excluded um, for whatever reason. And in any event, the bottom line is if you're, like you said, people coming and going into jobs and something says, you know, the procedures that are required are in volume such and such, you better go check and see if volume such and such actually exists or whether it was something that was going to be done that they never got done. And that appears to have been the case here. Yeah. The other thing I'd say for practical takeaway items for today, the lessons learned from Sanderson Farms, uh, you have to have checks and balances or what in the accounting side of any enterprise I would refer to as internal compliance controls or internal controls. And so if you have, let's say, five facilities, I would have one facility um, maybe audit the next one and uh, go around in a circle and have, uh, have the experts around your portfolio of establishments uh, take a cross-check or an, an audit of the, the neighboring facility. And I'd also consider regularly bringing everyone in for retraining. And the other internal control I would suggest I've never seen these anywhere, but I, I'm sure it makes good sense. Uh, and the other one I'd, I'd consider is third-party uh, auditors or trainers bring the manufacturers in and have them uh, take a look at system from time to time uh, and make sure that they feel like the the process safety management system that you've developed or protocols or policy that you've developed um, makes sense in light of the equipment that they've supplied. Uh, those are all just various things that you can do to, as an institution to cross-check the staff that you've trusted at the establishment level, make sure they're doing it right, make sure they haven't missed anything, or that there are gaps from, again, just the succession from one person to another at that establishment. So, so knowledge, after all, is volatile, and I think that uh, and, and practices can, can – it only takes one generation of employees in a particular job title for, for good practices to, to sometimes slip a little bit. 
So with that said, uh, I, I think the, the last suggestion, Larry, you pointed out, which is a good one, is to address the, this argument that Sanderson Farms raised, that inspection and testing may lead to greater hazards. For example, uh, an e-stop may be above or below a point of accidental release. And if it's uh, above the point of release, it doesn't do much good, and, and the release continues, and there, in some cases, uh, may, may be exacerbated. Uh, and, and so, so it's important to, to evaluate where your e-stops are, where your compression cutouts are, and and where you you can improve upon the process. And when it comes to inspection and testing of these devices, uh, to to pressurize them safely or to to have a a method by which you've blanked out and used non-hazardous materials for testing. Uh, and and to try and develop innovative procedures at your site to make sure that inspection and testing are done safely. Larry, any other thoughts on that last point? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't have enough expertise for these. I assume the issue is really that in some cases, if you test the uh, emergency system, you're going to slam some valves shut and potentially cause some overpressuring and, and other issues. And you know, one possibility somebody could consider would be actually uh, doing it during a shutdown or some other time when you might actually be able to take the component out and test it outside of the system and then put it back in right. or something like that and decide whether that's adequate. But uh, there have to be ways, uh, and people do shut systems down, uh, I don't know how often, for, for, for whatever reason, and that would be the time to, to check all these things, whether they're not in the middle of the processing operation. We're and making large amounts of product and have to rely on the refrigeration system. Yeah, that's right. Engineering a bypass and running it around an e-stop for testing purposes and then blanking off the bypass. Engineering a bypass specifically for testing is another opportunity uh, that has to be evaluated. And as you say, I mean, this is something that has to be done uh, with and in coordination with the manufacturers, with uh, engineers who, who design the process. Uh, but they are general concepts to consider in order to achieve safer testing or inspection of, of uh, the safety devices in a PSM-covered system. Well, with that said, Larry, I think that, that wraps up Sanderson Farms, an uh, incredibly important case, uh, and, and not just for PSM, but for those four elements that you see prevalent in any OSHA citation. Uh, in between now and the next time we meet, you can catch more OSHA developments on our Twitter account, at Rathmonish. We repost this as well as the past several years of OSHA 3030 episodes as a podcast. Uh, you can find that on iTunes, SoundCloud, or even now on Spotify. My favorite channel of our podcast app is the Apple Podcast, and we're on that as well. Uh, subscribe, and if you do so, please like so that it's more easily found by your colleagues. And we're on LinkedIn. Larry Halpern has a LinkedIn page. So do my colleagues, Javanay Nakumaran, David Savati, John Gustafson, many of us, including myself, and the practice, the firm's uh, workplace safety and health LinkedIn page as well. Make sure you stay linked in with us to stay in touch. We will see you again or hear you again uh, at 1 p.m. in about 30 days, August 19th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And more information about that at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, where this episode will be reposted. Uh, we also have the Tosca 3030 and FIFRA 3030. And for those of you practicing in Europe, uh, the REACH 3030 as well. Uh, those two, the Tosca and REACH 3030s, are on August 12th, also Wednesday. Uh, 
we will be back again, as I said, on August 19th. Until then, on behalf of my colleagues here at Keller and Heckman, and on behalf of Larry Halpin, thank you, by the way, for joining us. Thank you, uh, the OSHA 3030 community, for participating, and we will see you again next month. Until then, stay safe.